In partnership with 2SER's 107.3, the Walkleys present the latest episode of Walkley Talks. This is the first in an ongoing partnership with 2SER's Fourth Estate, a weekly program about the media featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello across the country and on the community radio network. You're listening to the Fourth State program, where the gin is cold but the piano is hot. My name is Michael Coziol, and joining us on the panel this week is Daily Telegraph columnist and opinion editor Sarah Lamarquand, the Australian social affairs reporter Rick Morton, investigative journalist with Dateline on SBS Mark Davis, and in Canberra on the phone, our politi- the political editor at ABC News 24, Lyndall Curtis. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Uh, look, let's start in Canberra. Uh, a lot of talk about the Nielsen poll on the front of Fairfax Papers today, um, showing quite a turnaround in the government's political fortunes, uh, along with a big hit to opposition leader Bill Shorten. Um, Little Curtis, I mean, leaving the politics aside for the moment, is this the risk you run when you move more into the, into the media spotlight, as Bill Shorten has done over the past week or so? I think that's a little bit of a risk. I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to be uh, sound like a politician for a minute and say you can't read too much into just one poll figures. And the Nielsen poll, there was a big gap between the two. One was taken in November and this one was taken in February. So, so that's a big gap. The other thing is I think the danger in reading too much into the opinion polls is the reporting that went with the poll last year or the last poll which showed that Labor had actually moved in front of the coalition and the reporting at the time said, you know, Tony Abbott had had the shortest honeymoon of any government in the history of anywhere. Um, That's actually turned around in this poll. The other difficulty, too, with reading polls is you don't always... You don't know exactly what people change their opinion on because that question's not asked. So you can can, uh, assume things, which is tends to be what we in the media do assume it's related to things but certainly the the politics has stepped up for the year it was really uh, australia day uh, the day after australia day seems to be the point at which it always steps up so we're we're into the politics of the year the first settings of parliament have happened and maybe people are uh, making a judgment of the the bill shorten and tony abbott this year so far. Mm, it's a good point. I mean, we shouldn't look too much into the polls at this stage, but I suppose you do expect this early on, you know, there to be some consistency, things to be sort of quite quiet on that front, and yet this has been quite a, well, somewhat of a dramatic change. Sarah Lamarquand, I mean, there was a lot of talk about Shorten being invisible, uh, you know, not courting the sort of attention you might expect from an opposition leader. Has he been trying to correct that, and how's it gone, in your opinion? Well, I suppose you could make the same accusation as a lot of people did about Tony Abbott. He was uh, a bit invisible for quite a while, and once he did become front and centre again, he got a sort of immediate backlash. And I think the same things happened to Bill Shorten. I don't know what it says about our federal politicians, that the less we see of them, the more we (laughs) seem to like them. Um, As Lyndall said, you can always... Uh, you have to assume some things because voters aren't asked what has changed their mind. It seems to have happened here. If I was going to uh, venture an assumption, I think one might be the fallout from uh, the discussion about union corruption and the calls for royal commission. I think really what's made this difficult for Bill Shorten, apart from from the obvious fact that he is obviously uh, deeply embedded with that issue, is the fact that 
Paul Howes came out so strongly on the issue and showed mm. fairly strong leadership and, and the use of his language. He was very keen to passionately disassociate the ALP from the corrupt parts of the unions and he used very strong vernacular in doing so and I think that that as when someone does come out and is convincing and shows real leadership it highlights the absence of it and I think that it's for a lot of people has uh, rammed home the idea that you know Bill Shorten is potentially in a bit over his head certainly on this issue and that there might be a bit of a leadership vacuum in the ALP. Yep. Uh, Mark Davis, I mean, I suppose on the other side of the equation, you've got to give the government some credit here for managing what, in many people's view, was an awful fortnight, um, the forecast Toyota closure and the SBC Ardmona decision. Yeah. Uh, how did they manage to tell this story in the media in a way that seems to have reflected well upon them? Uh, I don't think they told it particularly well uh, at all, actually. I thought they did an atrocious job myself. I mean, people bought that we're sick of paying for the car industry. But to me, if I was to be a media advisor, the narrative is you need to replace that. Okay, we're losing this, but we're getting this. We're going to put money into a computer centre in Adelaide. and we're going to... They had none of that, which I, th- I thought was rather ham-fisted. Um, you know, I'm never dismissive of polls. I accept the poll is correct. Why not? But, uh, but on the same hand, you might say, so what? It's a long race. I wouldn't be panicking about it now or crowing about it now. It's very early days. And Rick Morton, mm. I suppose, is that something that that kind of longer-term game and longer-term media narrative is something they might have to work on better if they're to be successful? I, I think that's something both Tony Abbott lacked when he was opposition and Bill Shorten lacks now is a long-term narrative. Um, and hes I get the impression now that it's kind of shorten hunting season as well um, and that he's quite trying to lay low and, and have a small target strategy um, placed on him. And look, I mean, that might work in the short term, but at the end of the at the end of the uh, electoral cycle, you need to come up with something, and you need to have a proper strategy in place. And at the moment, they're basically running with the previous Labor government's legislative agenda as their own agenda in opposition. They need something new. Both both are, aren't they? The government's running yes. with its uh, election. <laughs> no one's uh, moved on from the well. election. Yeah, no, it's really amazing, actually, including yeah. no, the media. But you also <laughs> have to remember we're we're three years really from the next election. The government's still trying to implement its policies. It is, I think. Um, beginning to construct a narrative that's largely being driven by Joe Hockey and has for some time about what it needs to do and why it needs to do it. I think the opposition, it's a new opposition, it's got it's got longer to construct a narrative because really for the first for the first year and a half and particularly leading into the government's first budget, all the attention is focused on what the government's actually going to do. And I don't I don't know that the public are too fussed about what the opposition's long-term narrative is going to be at this point mm. in time. I mean, can I just pose a generalist question that we might throw open to anyone, is that, that we do talk a lot, and journalists talk a lot, about this idea of constructing a narrative and it's imperative. You have to construct a narrative. Does it, do you think the public actually cares about a narrative? And is there any evidence either way that they do? I, th- I think it's a way to explain why you're doing things that you're doing. Um, we call it a narrative, but it's a it's a explaining your actions, and and you you need the public to understand what you're doing if they're going to go along with it and accept it. That so, you know, it's you can't just do things without explaining to the public why you're doing it. Now. We call it a narrative, but an explanation is as good a term as any as well. Uh, You're listening to the Fourth Estate program with Sarah Lamarquand, Rick Morton, Lyndall Curtis and Mark Davis. Other news from the political realm today, uh, the AFR reported on an $882 million hit to the federal budget caused by a tax office payout to none other than Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. 
Um, this is the result of some very old paper shuffling that went on after a restructure in 1989. Uh, the federal court in, I think it was July last year, ruled in favour of news, uh, and the government began paying out the money uh, over the Christmas and summer break. Um, uh, Lyndall Curtis, I mean, why has this come into the, the public eye now, and, and what do you make of it in general? I, I think it's come into the public eye because I think um, news de- declared it in their accounts. Um, these things happen, I, I guess. So people win and lose court cases with the ATO all the time, rarely to the tune of this amount of money. But certainly it's it's a hit to the government, to the budget bottom line, at a time when it least needs it. Mm, yes. Do, does anyone know why it is so much? I mean, it seems like quite an extraordinary uh, figure, and I think it was the biggest line item in that deterioration of the budget over the second half of last year, if I recall. It was the biggest single line item. I think mm. it was so much because um, there was a $2 billion loss at the time or something along those lines because of the Australian dollar and the restructuring of the business way mm. back when. And that it was $600 billion payout with the interest accrued, which brought it up to $833 million. So it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot of money, but um, it's also it was decided by a judge. So I suppose if people have problems with it, then they should probably attack the legislative framework. Uh, it would be terribly unfortunate if it was a government decision, wouldn't it, given, <laughs> given how much Murdoch kind of committed to and, the and, and, and fair enough, Rick, but I mean, I mean your paper in particular mm. was very critical of Labor for supposedly blowing out the federal yeah. budget. Uh, is it problematic that <clears throat> $900 million of that money is actually going into News Corp? I, look, I, look, it's probably never ideal for the, for the taxpayer to foot a bill that big that suddenly because it all came at once. But um, I lodged a tax return last year. I got money back from the ATO, rightfully so, as I was due. The court, obviously, in this case, decided Rupert Murdoch and News Corp or, um, was due that money because of um, a decision taken many years before. It's all part of the due process. And in actual fact, the money isn't going to us here in the newspapers in Australia anyway. It's going to 21st Century Fox. So. <laughs> oh, <even better. laughs> it, is, it is sad for people like me. It is very sad. <laughs> Mark Davis, what's your view on this? Oh, look, I don't know. I can't be that malicious. <laughs> you can, Mark. It's okay. I'll still talk to you. Well, I'm a great believer in the judicial system. And uh, if there was any ministerial intervention, I'd have a a very different uh, take, but for the moment I'll leave it yep. in the hands of the courts. But. <laughs> Fair enough. And Sarah, we'll leave you off the hook on this one. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Lucky Sarah. You're listening to The Fourth Estate here on 2SCR and across the country on the Community Radio Network. I'm Michael Cosio with us in the studio today. Sarah Lamarckwin from The Daily Telly, Rick Morton from The Oz, Lyndall Curtis, the politi- political editor at ABC News 24, and Mark Davis from Dateline on SBS. Um, while we're talking, and we have been talking a little bit about newspapers, uh, the print and digital sales figures for the major newspapers came out last week, and it was a massacre out there once again. Uh, most papers registered double-digit year-on-year falls in print circulation, uh, with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald again hardest hit. Uh, but the news wasn't pretty for digital sales either. Tim Burrows over at Mumbrella took a look at the numbers and said that it now seems conclusive that digital subscriptions are not going to come anywhere near to making up for the revenue shortfall from print losses. Sarah Lamarquin, do you agree with that summation? Oh, no, it's far too early to be making any sort of conclusive statements. It's obvious that it's an uphill battle. This is going to be a very long, arduous process for all involved because it's about re-educating readers and it's 
the same idea, isn't it, as bottled water that everyone said, oh, I'm not paying for water when I get it out of the tap for free. And then, of course, you can't go anywhere now without being bombarded with bottled water. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And I have no doubt that eventually digital journalism will become just as viable as bottled water. I think what all of the major media companies are going through a very difficult transition program. We see it happen all around the world. What sort of model do you take? Um, what sort of drop-off can you wear for a while? There's, Of course, you have to look at this from a whole-of-business approach. It's not just about digital subscriptions in one arena and, for example, magazine digital subscriptions are very much on the rise so that's a growing sector there's also other elements that you don't hear about in these reports like the the um spike in apps for example that news corp and i'm sure fairfax have uh, a lot of revenue going into that area so there's always developing technologies it's it's Far, far, far too early, at least 10 years too early to anyone, including Tim, who I have a lot of respect for, to be trying to uh, call call this. Well, I think the point he was making was that uh, if he looked at the breakdown of, of growth in digital subscriptions and found that uh, they had been slowing to the point, and in some newspapers, I think for the Herald Sun, they actually went backwards in the most recent quarter, lost some digital subscribers. Um, so, I mean, Rick Morton, that was the same case for the Australian, mm-hmm. the, the the growth in digital subscriptions really slowed. Uh, has it reached its maximum? Uh, well, I th- look, again, I think it's way too early to call any of this. Uh, almost none of the numbers went backwards. Um, they're still growing, so that's a positive sign. Um, there could be seasonal fluctuations. We don't know that for sure because this is quarter-on-quarter analysis and not year-on-year like you have with new p- newspaper circulation. Um, is it slowing? Absolutely. And do we need to do more to bulk up our product? Definitely. Um, but I think there's definitely a market out there for good journalism that people will pay to get to behind a paywall if you give them um, the right content. And so there might be a point now where there's some give and take in that process where you try and redevelop websites or content and the way you get it to people so that they might then be um, pushed to subscribe in greater numbers. So there will be some give and take in that going forward, I think. Uh, um, Mark and Lindell, I mean, you're sitting over there in TV land, so perhaps well, don't I mean, have so much invested it, in this. What, yeah, what do you know, make? I'm invested as a, a long and faithful reader of many newspapers, but I'll, ta- I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a survey of one. It's interesting. I'm avoiding the paywalls. I've stopped reading newspapers this year, which I took as significant. I've been a newspaper guy all my life. I stopped reading. I haven't paid yet. I get Fairfax. They don't bother me at all. For somehow, I keep reading Fairfax. They never even ask me for my money. Murdoch, you know, Murdoch in his style <laughs> asks, and uh, so I avoid that as long as I have. But I'm probably on the verge of going. Oh, I might have to bloody subscribe to this thing. But it's also a fantastic time to see other people come in that don't need the capital of uh, you know printing presses and distribution. I'm reading the Guardian uh, quite quite frequently. I read New Matilda. There's other players, and it's actually interesting. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm not optimistic. It's terrible to see these the, the big ones collapse and, and the others not really getting on their feet substantially, but interesting times. Um, and Lyndall I, Curtis, does this sort of confirm what everyone's suspected already, that the, it's just not, the shortfall isn't going to be made up for? Well, I, I actually agree with Sarah. I think this is a long-term change that people will be making. There are people still reading, you know, old-fashioned paper newspapers, uh, there are people reading solely online and there are people like me who do a bit of both. And unlike Mark, I do I do subscribe digitally to a few newspapers, including the Australian. I, I should. And I feel guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I think, you know, it, this, the not only the move to digital, which will be happening over a long period of time, because I think often journalists make the mistake 
of assuming people consume news the same way we do, which is, you know, we like it all online and, and newspapers now look, think that people have all their news from TV and the internet. So, so offering maybe change products in their newspapers than they used to. Um, but eventually you can see a time when things will move online and people who want news will, will pay for it. I suspect if newspaper owners had their, would be, were able to go back in time, they would have been charging from the get-go. And you look at things like, particularly, say, Apple's App Store, where people pay a little bit often for things and make in-app purchases, that that's model, that you pay a little bit you know, often for your digital subscription, which is what I do for the Australians. You know, you pay a little bit over a series of months and it doesn't seem like much. I think I think this will take time to unfold. It's just keeping keeping money in the business over that time, over that changeover, that's going to be the difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we move on, Sarah, I mean, will we be seeing figures for the Daily Telegraph's digital subscriptions? Because news hasn't released them yet. They've only released numbers for the Herald Sun in Melbourne, which is obviously bolstered by some of its sport coverage behind the paywall. Do you know what your figures are like? Share no, them with us. I have not seen any figures. Um, most people that I've spoken to at the Daily Telegraph haven't seen figures. I think where these figures are coming from is um, still a fairly fluid proposition in and of itself. And there isn't one singular way of monitoring this. My understanding is that all the figures are being constantly reviewed. And like I say, uh, at the risk of going uh, you know, too heavy into sort of uh, accountant type speak, because these are the people that are giving you the information is that it is being assessed at a whole of business. So there's a lot of discussion versus digital versus app and all the all the various types it is a little bit more complicated than, uh, you know, like the Mumbrella report, for example, probably gives credit to it. Fair enough. Well, uh, speaking of accountancy, everyone had a different guess at what Channel 7 paid to interview Chappelle Corby. Some said up to $3 million. Others have said it was well south of $1 million. Either way, if the interview does go ahead, she's set to turn an easy buck. Uh, Mark Davis, I mean, what are the ethics around paying for interviews, particularly where it concerns a convicted criminal? Oh, look, I, I don't want to get on my, on my high horse because we never pay for um, interviews. But uh, having said that, it actually works incredibly well to our advantage. We, we get, I mean, big interviews by saying, I'm sorry, we don't pay. Um, but you know you can bring something else to the to the ball game. I, I don't like it, but uh, I mean for me it's a commercial uh, issue. I think if you're stupid enough to pay a million bucks, well you know explain that to your shareholders. I, I don't get it. I don't think there's a look. It depends what's happening. It depends if you're inducing someone to lie for money. That's uh, an ethical journalistic issue. If it's in this kind of trash interview kind of land, uh, I, I couldn't care less myself. When you say you can bring something else to the table of money, or what is that thing? Is influence? Well, for instance, I mean, I think of in the last year I've done uh, uh, extensive interviews with uh, and travelled with uh, Julian Assange. I did um, uh, an interview inside uh, the jail in Bali with uh, the Bali Nine guys on death row. Um, I've got one Tuesday night at 9.30 with Christopher Boyce, Falcon and the Snowman guy, former CIA guy now out of jail. I don't know. They know your program. They know you do it well. They, uh, you know, don't think you're a sensationalist program. Um, you know, it can work for you. Yeah. Uh, Lyndall Curtis, I mean, the ABC doesn't pay for interviews, does it? Or would you want to? Um, no, I don't think I would. But but then, you know, I'm in the happy position of working for a public broadcaster and I won't have to make that decision. I think we have to remember that the commercial TVs are businesses and this presumably is a business decision that they're going to make that money on the interview. The question is... 
what the audience wants. Will will they tune in and watch? In which case, you'd have to say um, the channel's decision to pay the money would be worth it. But if the audience doesn't like it and doesn't want uh, Chappelle Corby paid for an interview, then they won't turn on. Sarah Lamarquand, business decision? Well, I also work for a publication that doesn't pay for stories and um, it's very rare if we do. And along the lines of really what Mark was talking about there, it's an ethical and also a business decision. For us, uh, perhaps if it was ever considered, which again is really, really rare. I mean, in Australia, it is the TV, the commercial TV stations Mm -hmm. and the magazines, the women's magazines that own this territory. We, for example, if a, a woman had lost all of her family and her children in a tragedy, it might be a case where uh, money was offered. It really has to be that sort of circumstance and it, it's very few and far between. I think with the Chappelle Corby, there is clearly uh, a discussion as to is it worthwhile? I think they misjudged the mood of the nation. Going back to 2005, Chappelle Corby was the biggest story in Australia. Fast forward to 2014, still a big story, but goodwill isn't behind her. And I think that's a range of things. It's simply the fact that most people have come to the view that she probably was guilty. She is, of course, a convicted drug smuggler. And also her family really haven't done her cause much favour. We've had the sister going out and selling uh, photos of herself, posing up for a men's magazine. None of this particularly builds goodwill and... I don't think it's money well spent. I think Channel 7 are probably privately regretting it. But, again, it's a business. And while I do find it personally unpalatable, I can tell you as someone of a similar age to Chappelle Corby, I wouldn't give up my 30s, the decade in which I've had two children and been married for $2 million. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Morton, uh, I mean, the ABC mm-hmm. Fact Check came out today and said, oh, well, you know, obviously we'll go to court, but in all likelihood... She probably wouldn't be able to get the money based on precedent. If she lost them that money for the book, uh, that got taken off her. Uh, do we need kind of harder and tighter rules around this, or what's your view? Look, I'm, I'm I'm kind of reluctant to change legislation without a really really good reason, and these things are few and far between. I mean, I'm more offended by the fact that they um, that journalists and, and organisations pay for interviews um, in TV land. I think it's offensive to the act of reporting, and it actually takes away some of those <clears throat> skills that you might bring to that endeavour anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to change the laws to stop criminals receiving proceeds? Um, I think they work pretty well as mm-hmm. they are. So you don't think it's ever okay? It makes reporting for all of us harder. People start to mm-hmm. assume that we all pay. It's quite incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and, I've, in the yeah. last two months alone, I've had two people ask yeah. for payment yes. for a story and I just say, we can't do it. I'm that's sorry. That's right. Yeah, we get asked so all the time So it sets up expectations. Well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, the program on media and journalism on the Community Radio Network. Finally on the program today, uh, following a post by Mamma Mia writers and editors, Julia Baird in the Sydney Morning Herald on Saturday drew further attention to the plight of female commentators and public personalities who cop extremist, sexist abuse online. Um, Sarah, I know you've experienced some of this in the past. Is it a problem that anonymity is allowed or encouraged uh, by some online platforms like Twitter? Oh, look, absolutely. Any any sort of uh, forum where people don't have to communicate with you face-to-face, it, it, it obviously gives them a shield where they feel emboldened to say things that they wouldn't otherwise. But I also think there's a disconnect. And you speak to all sorts of people in media, people on TV, for example, uh, where people will email them saying, oh, I don't like what you're wearing, your hair looks horrible. And if they reply in any kind like email, nine times out of ten, that person will instantly dial down their rhetoric, if not 
completely apologise, sometimes in a very grovelling fashion, because there's just this strange disassociation that it might actually be a flesh and blood person on the other end of that tweet or email. And I think that there's no doubt that social media has accelerated that. But I think really with the, the cult of um, rape threats, which really is a cult, it's, it happens a lot to women in the media all around the world, is uh, just some sort of really deep-rooted misogyny that is clearly directed at women who speak up and, and express an opinion. And at, at some level, there's obviously a part of the community, hopefully a tiny part of the community that's uncomfortable with them. But they are there. I have encountered them first hard, firsthand. And, and it's a very real uh, trend. Mm. Little Curtis, I mean, you're there on the television almost every day. Uh, you must have some experience of this as well. Uh, yes, but probably less so because uh, I don't have as huge a profile and I tend to work in politics so most of the uh, most of the suggestions and comments I get tend to be about whether I'm politically biased one way or the other. I think the interesting thing, first, I think anonymity is a huge problem. It allows people to say things they may never say if their name was attached to them. And the other thing is with electronic communication, the time between someone having a thought and expressing it has shortened dramatically. You know, in the in the way back when, in the old days, when, when you know, I was a girl and Noah was a boy, you had to write it in a letter and put a stamp on it and post it or actually ring someone and confront them directly. You don't have to do that now. You can have the thought immediately, type it into Twitter hit send and that message has gone off to that person and you walk away from your computer and may not think of it again but someone's received that and I think I think that's a problem and I think if people had their actual real names attached to some of these things they wouldn't say them but the other thing is I think threats of rape or threats of death should always be reported to the police you can't I don't think you can ignore them and say that's just some crazy you know some person on Twitter blowing off steam or making something they'll never throw up. They'll never throw up. I think you have to treat these things seriously. Yeah, and it seems to be a particular problem with women writing about sex um, and uh, female issues. I mean, Mark Davis, is there anything that can be can or should be done in these sort of circumstances where you're talking about real extremes, death threats, rape threats? Uh, well, you go to the police. I mean, people uh, don't have the anonymity. <clears throat> Perhaps that's a good message to uh, put out. You know, People actually don't have the type of anonymity that they believe they do have. Mm. And um, if you make a threat of that nature, hopefully the resources of the state will pursue you uh, uh, and prosecute you. And uh, I think people should be aware of, uh, of that. But uh, apart from that, no, I'm not a big... I'm not a fan of uh, large amounts of laws... Um, you know, uh, Rick Morton, um, have you ever been subject to any of this stuff? I and mean, we shouldn't act like it's only women, although it's obviously a heightened problem. No, um, I haven't, but I wouldn't for a moment pretend that the kind of abuse I've copped is somehow different uh, or the same as what women get because mm -hmm. I have seen firsthand the kind of abuse that women get online. I, full disclosure, I used to work at Mamma Mia and I worked there when Mia Friedman said those comments about Cadell Evans on the Today Show and for a week... I saw thousands and thousands of emails and messages and Twitter posts saying that her children were going to be done for. I'm not even going to repeat what was said. I've seen it firsthand and people who say that it doesn't exist are lying or haven't experienced it and I think it's despicable and women get subjected to a much harsher degree of it than men do. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, um, because we do have to go, but Sarah Lamarckman, what happened to the Daily Telegraph's campaign against the trolls? Did that ever 
be get any mm. results or well that was back in 2012 and yes at the time they actually succeeded in forcing Twitter to have to deal directly with the local police in the past they didn't have to deal with local legal authorities and I think probably the the most powerful part of that campaign or any other campaign or a discussion like this is just bringing it out into the sphere as Rick says a lot of people refuse to believe mm. that it is happening and it can be really eye-opening for people that don't work in the media and don't see this ugliness firsthand to know that it is out there. Well, there we go. That's all we have time for on this week's Fourth Estate. Thank you very much to Sarah Marquand, Rick Morton, Lyndall Curtis and Mark Davis. Remember, all our podcasts are available at fourthestate.org.au. You can also interact with us on Twitter at fourthestateau. I'm Michael Coziol, and we'll be back next week at the same time with more from the world of Australian media journalism. Until then, bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. See the program description for all the links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events. <laughs>